This is a warning to all living mortals that on the 13th of December, Moose will release 13 of the most terrifying interviews of horror unto the world. That's right, 13 brand new episodes in the month of December leading up to our season premiere. And until then, horror hounds, mash on. to another episode of Moose's 13 Horrifying Days of Christmas. I'm your host and gift giver, Moose. My gift for you today is a gift of, well, real horror. And to do that, I could think of no one better to bring on than author and filmmaker, John Borowski. John, how's it going? Great. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited, as always, to talk about serial killers and, uh, you know, the murderous deeds that they do. Yeah, it's a very interesting topic that seems to grip, especially the American psyche, very well. Yeah, well, you know, you know, you look at this country, I mean, especially, you know, now we're in the, uh, you know, 2020s and, um, you know, we're almost immune to all these shootings and all these things that have happened. But it seems like America always likes drama like that. I mean, you look over time, people... You know, Eddie, going back to Hollywood Babylon, you know, when people read these books about, you know, the accidents and deaths of celebrities and how they happened. And, you know, even back to the beginning of, you know, serial killing with H.H. Holmes and how people are fascinated by these early true crime cases. So there's always been a public fascination with serial killers. And it's obviously, you know, because these people, you know, you don't see them and you don't see their acts every day. So when we hear about them and especially when we find out they could be you know, our wife, uh, husband, uh, son, neighbor, police officer, you know, it gets really scary. And, you know, kind of the serial killers have morphed into the murderers now. But of course, you know, the new generations that are learning about these serial killers now, they're totally fascinated by them. And, you know, uh, one of the things that brought the attention to serial killers recently into the public psyche is Mindhunter, that show Mindhunter. And I noticed after that show was released, there was just a ton of interest in true crime. You know, when I do my conventions and I have a booth after Mindhunter, so many more people were interested. I saw and, and, you know, rallying around my booth and want to talk about killers. And like I said, the new generation is fascinated by them. When I do conventions, I'll have 
young, you know, male and females, anywhere from 10 years old and up, usually, usually females are the main demographic for true crime. And, you know, they're teenage girls. And, and, you know, this one young boy at a convention gave me a drawing he did of Pogo the Clown. So they're fascinated by these stories, too, because they've grown up with Pennywise and a lot of these other, you know, Hollywood silver screen killers, which is a fascinating topic. And I think everyone's interested. It just depends on what level. You know, there are people that like to read the books and watch the shows and not really talk about it because they're kind of embarrassed. It's like, yeah, okay, that's kind of, people might think I'm weird. And then you go up the ladder, but there are murderabilia collectors. There are artists such as myself doing works and writing books on them. People in law enforcement are fascinated by it too. I know an ex-police officer who owns three Gacy paintings and they're in his living room and his wife doesn't mind. So, you know, we have these these thoughts of how bad this stuff is and how it could be, but everyone's interested in it. And, you know, I don't think we should knock people that, you know, have a fascination with it because the majority of people that I have met that are, they're not, you know, uh, weirdos in their basements. They're everyone. They're just like everyone else. They're just fascinated by it, whether they're collecting books on it or collecting, you know, memorabilia or true crime artifacts or reading about it. Um, the public in general is fascinated around the world, but especially in the United States. Oh, yeah. And it is funny, you mentioned the, uh, you know, a lot of the Hollywood horror types have been inspired by serial killers. And I, I find it interesting that Hollywood always makes the murderer this, like, big, like, grotesque, almost monster. And yet, you go through the history of serial killers, and it's the guy next door. I mean, you look at Bundy... Um, Dahmer, any of them. I mean, all the way back to H.H. H. Holmes, he was just some old guy. You know, it's it's funny that Hollywood hasn't done just like the everyman murderer yet, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, you know, some, they have made some films about it. Um, uh, there was a great film, it's a foreign film, but they remade it. The original film was called The Vanishing. And it's a great movie, and it's about um, a guy and his girlfriend traveling by car. They stop at a gas station, and the wife goes into the store and never comes out, completely disappears, a wife or girlfriend, but she's gone. And then she gets a call. Uh, I mean, the boyfriend gets a call from someone, some stranger, a male, and says, if you want to find out what happened to her, you have to go through the same thing. And, you know, serial killers are like that. I'm sure that was based on many true stories. Um but that was one example, too. But th I think they are starting to figure out that, yes, you know, like, of course, when I grew up with horror films, I loved monsters and I mm -hmm. loved all that stuff and the slasher films, too, you know. Um, but it is scarier when it is your next door neighbor or your husband or someone, you know, because people, you know, least suspect that. And I'm uh, producing right now the miniseries on John Wayne Gacy. And he's the perfect example because, you know, my sister didn't know too much about it. What I was telling her, she said, oh, yeah, he was probably a mean guy. I said, no, he was a nice guy and everyone loved him. Everyone wanted to hang around with him, have him at parties. Everyone said they loved him. Even his next door neighbor after or during the trial, while he, it was known that he killed 33 young men, his next door neighbor said, I don't think John Wayne Gacy is evil. I think he's brilliant. Right. No, yeah, these are, yeah. You know, it, it's just, yeah, the, the guy next door, you know, mentality is just, it, it's so strange. And, yeah, you're, you're right. It is much scarier to think that, you know, it 
the, the monster could be anyone. Like, you walk outside, and could it be the lady walking her dog? Could it be the guy standing on the corner? You know, I mean, there's just so many real-world possibilities. It's unreal. Well, and, you know, you mentioned uh, elderly man, you know, Albert Fish. Um, and that's how he was. He looked like a kind grandfather. You would just see standing on the street and you would think, ah, you know, or he's with a little girl. That must be his granddaughter. Well, it's really a little girl that he's kidnapping and taking to kill her and eat her. Yeah. You know, nobody, of course, would think that in their mind. No one. Um, you know, unless, you know, you're Stephen King, maybe, you know, or a, or a horror out there would think that, oh, yeah, maybe he's a cannibal or whatever. He's going to turn into a monster. But again, that's one thing that. I do regret in my filmmaking career, I called H.H. Holmes a monster. And I found out after that researching more serial killers that we know that these serial killers don't grow fangs and horns and their skin doesn't turn scaly green once they're apprehended or they go into prison. They're still human beings, and they did these acts as human beings. And that's why I feel it's our job as a society to figure out why they did these things. And, you know, that's why I'm all for whatever it's, whether it's Mindhunter or psychology, psychiatry, studying these serial killers, forensic psychology. I think all those things are important. And when I'm at conventions, especially, I have parents come up with their teenage daughter and they say, oh, we're worried about her. She's too much into this stuff. And I tell them, nurture that because she could be a future forensic psychologist, law enforcement officer, judge, behavioral psychologist. We need interested people in these fields. So, again, they're not salivating over, oh, I love the blood and gore and I want to see pictures. No, it's it's a serious study of the minds and acts of serial killers. And like my films portray, it's also the the time period they lived in and how they got how long they got away with it because of the time period, whether it was lack of technology, lack of DNA typing, um, sociology. How did people react to them that knew them? Dahmer, his apartment, the people around him. All those things are important. Um, so psychology plays the biggest part, I think, you know, and I always study their childhoods and how they grew up and what trauma or, or if none of that, what made them, you know, become interested are addicted to serial killing so when you're writing a book or doing like a miniseries or a documentary what is your like process for research and all, like what all goes into getting everything ready before the final product yeah there's a lot that goes into it um i usually start with um reading all the current books or all the books that i've have ever been published on that serial killer that I'm studying because obviously those are most readily available. So I read all those things. I see inconsistencies in different books. Um, and so I, I make note of those things and then I start creating an outline of the life of the serial killer. And then and beyond that, I start looking at actual case files. If there are any case files and if I could get a hold of them because sometimes they're marked as private and they won't be released even way back you know when those are even hard to get as well but if I could get those I'd do that because I learned um, a while back and when I interviewed Lieutenant Jason Moran who's uh, he's on the current Gacy case still identifying the unidentified some of the unidentified victim he said there's a difference between what the sensational that the sensationalism that the news reports and the truth of which the investigators know the truth of the case or as much as they can. 
And, you know, that really struck me. And that's very true because I usually go to newspapers as a last resort because many times you'll find newspapers have made up things. They even make up names. They've changed things. They're not highly accurate. Exactly. Right. It's not about like when the Gacy case broke, you know, the, the first day that it broke, they said, oh, it could be six victims. Well, they didn't even know. They didn't even go down there. They found a couple bones, but they didn't know there were six down there. So, of right. course, you're right. It's about the sensationalism. Um, so that's usually what I do with my studies. And then I'll start creating a script, kind of like a rough draft of the script. And um, the next thing will be looking at who I have to interview or who I'd like to interview, you know, either the people involved with the case or other experts who may not be involved in a case, such as forensic psychologists or uh, history experts, you know, people that aren't directly involved with the case, but they could comment on it based on their experience and their uh, training and wisdom. Um, and then after that, as I'm interviewing people, I'm starting my timeline of the edit. So I'm thinking of, okay, where am I going to put these parts of the interviews? I log the interviews, put them in a timeline. And that's how it takes shape. It's very organic. And many times as I'm starting to edit, I'm writing the script and I'm still doing filming. So it grows very organically. Like right now with Gacy, I'm at the point where it's the excavation of the bodies, but I'm still kind of writing it and researching as I'm going along, even though I have my master timeline of all the important events and the details which happened in their lives. Um, it, 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 for me, it's a lot of going back and forth because I don't think, especially with a documentary, like for instance, I could write an entire script for the documentary. But how do I know what my interviewees are going to say? So I can't really, it's, I don't, you know, I can make a, a rough draft of a script, but, you know, some of the interviewees will also create new answers and questions that might be answered. So again, that's why it's very organic. And then once I'm editing it, I have a rough cut and I look at it and say, okay, what else do I need now? I need more of these photos. I need some other reenactments. And then after that, it's, um, this, uh, music mix score composing and then sound design and that's it i do almost all of that now i i did used to have a sound a designer sound mixer and a composer but you know it's expensive and uh sometimes they take time and that's fine but i want to wrap this thing up sooner rather than later so i'm doing a lot of it on my own pretty much everything um i've had people help with you know, filming and, uh, you know, different aspects of reenactments and things like that. So, um, but yeah, it's very, very painstaking. I have a very particular attention to detail. So it's like, for instance, if I'm editing, I could be editing for eight to 12 hours and I might get, if I'm lucky, five to 10 minutes edited, if I'm lucky, sometimes it's less because it depends on if the sequence and how much detail mm -hmm. it needs to be put into it, you know, because I want to get it right. So I'm going like for the Gacy project, I'm looking at the original documents. I'm looking at my notes um, and, you know, piecing all those together. And, and especially through my research with things I've learned or things people have said, like the experts through the interviews and writing the narration for that. If the interviewees don't say that. So, it's very tough, you know, but in the end, it is worth it because I feel that's what separates my documentaries from others, especially the Hollywood documentaries. Hollywood comes in, they do their thing, they leave, you know, and then they do it all in Hollywood. But, you know, like for me in Chicago on the Gacy Project, I'm fully immersed in it. 
So, um, you know, I found many and that doors have opened to me being a Chicagoan that might not have been open to Hollywood producers coming in to make their documentaries. So, you know, a lot of times there is an advantage to being the little guy because people will trust you more and I could get away with a lot more. Whereas I'm not bringing an entire crew from Hollywood, insurance issues, all this equipment. It's just me, my tripod and my camera. You know, I was filming at one of the, um, uh, the dams where one of the Gacy victims had washed up. And I asked them, you know, I was wondering if I could film at the dam. And then the lock master came in, a young guy. He's like, oh, yeah, no problem. You know, get your stuff. So I went to get my stuff. And here they have a whole cart. So they drove me and just me and my equipment all the way on top of this dam so I could get footage of the dam where the bodies washed up and down the river. They wouldn't have ever gave that to Hollywood. It's too dangerous. Right. You know, so sometimes it is better to be a little guy because there are more advantages. Yeah, I may not have, you know, the millions of dollars Hollywood has, but my story is going to be true to the fact that nobody could, you know, knock any of the details and they're going to learn a lot of things that they may not have learned before. You know, one of the things that has come up in, you know, recent events is like, okay, after the big Netflix Dahmer series, uh, you know, I mean, it, it blew up and went everywhere. And one of the biggest concerns was like, no one talked to the victim's families about it ahead of time. You know, is that something that you take into consideration or is it just, you know, I mean, it, this is all public domain. Correct. All this information is all public. It's public domain. It's a public case. You know, everyone involved in the case is public. So, yes, legally, filmmakers do not have to contact any of the people, you know, unless they're showing something, you know, that is copywritten or trademarked, obviously. Um, that would be another story. But even then, you could get away with it. If it's a documentary, there's such a thing as fair use because you've got to show something that you're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, for documentaries, you get away with a little more. But, you know, of course, we're in the outrage and attention generation. So those do go hand in hand. So, for instance, okay, with the Dahmer thing, the first thing that came out was this outrage of people said, well, how can they do this? How can they not contact the families? And, you know, they didn't do that. Well, it's like, okay, but who started saying that and where did it come from? Because, you know, the families were all pretty quiet. I mean, I think there was one or two people that said, yes, they didn't contact us. Okay, but that's a fact. But then there's this outrage. And then after the show aired, just recently, uh, Ryan Murphy, the producer, said, well, guess what, people? I really did contact 20 of the family members and friends, and they never got back to me. So that was fake outrage. These people started the outrage, and they did not even know if the producer had attempted to contact the families. And then again, it's the attention generation. Mm -hmm. So the people that say these things, oh, they're getting all the attention because people are reading their blogs or their Twitters or whatever it is. So, you know, there's a lot of that that goes on, too. It's like, look, we had outrage of this case, the Dahmer case in the 90s. Why do we have to go through it again? Yes, we had that. You know, you people should be more outraged at the inconsistencies and the inaccuracies of the, you know, the monster show because there are a bunch of them, you know, and it's again, that's it's very interesting when these things come up. But I, I like like I said, people do say outrage. And oh, now they're now they're post. Well, should we rethink true crime documentaries? Why you don't want people to learn about history, you know, and and then it's the total antithesis at my conventions. Like I said, the entire day of a convention, I'll have 20 or 30 people around my booth. 
and people will come over and we're laughing. They say, what are you laughing about? And I'd say serial killers, because, you know, it's so absurd sometimes that we talk about these stories. We, you know, and the true crime people know the ins and outs and we can joke about some of these things. It's never making light of the families or the victims or anything like that. Um, you know, it's more or less like, you know, okay, what did, you know, the killer have in their toolbox, stuff like this, you know, but, um, yeah, the outrage is something that, you know, it doesn't really bother me as long as it's not censorship because it recently also on Instagram, I was, uh, there was a post of mine that was taken down. This was after the Dahmer series. And my post was just an ad that showed my book covers and my film posters. And it was just an ad for my store to go to people in my store and buy these products if you're interested in history and serial killers. Well, they took that down and that was two years old and they said it didn't adhere to their community guidelines. So again, I think they're trying to target these things to, oh no, we can't, we can't even mention serial killers now. It's like, come on, this is these things happen. They're part of history, and we should study them. You know, look at Jack the Ripper. How many movies and books have been written on him? Same thing about Gacy and all these people. But we're all interested when there's a new documentary, a new book. We're going to read it or watch it to find out, okay, what might be in here that we don't know before. There was a book on Gacy recently about all the victims called The Boys Enter the House. Mm-hmm. And I learned many things, you know, from that book I never knew before. So, again, you know, you never know who the researcher is, because when I was making my Gacy documentary, I reached out to, you know, some of these you know, people that were involved in the case and everyone was very, you know, attentive and responsive. But one of these reporters on the case said, well, what's different about yours and blah, 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 all this other stuff. And, you know, I cannot explain that to them. I could say this is going to be the most thorough, concise, you know, documentary on Gacy ever, but they don't see that, you know, they don't have that vision. So, you know, they just think it's another documentary, but you know, what I bring to, you know, what I bring to the table is that uniqueness of my vision, my style, and the attention to detail and the accuracy of everything in the documentary. Well, and, you know, that that, that brings up, you know, you were talking about the, uh, you know, adhering to community standards and targeting the, you know, the the, the topic. And I think where that falls is a misconception between glorifying the acts and wanting to, like, we've now talked about multiple times understanding the mind of the killer because like I have zero interest in glorifying any of these guys, but I do want to know what made them tick. You know, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting subject to take. And I'll use uh, H.H. Holmes as an example to take somebody who builds a murder castle and just starts wiping people out for the hell of it. What, like what causes that? Like what, what flips that switch? Like, and I think that's what intrigues more people than the, uh, Oh, well, like, okay. Dahmer killed a bunch of people, ate some of them, you know, Gacy killed and buried a bunch of people. You know, it's more of the, how can this normal person flip that switch? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, and they talk about glorification, but, you know, if you look at glorifying up even the definition of it, it's, you know, to build someone up to make them seem great. Well, I mean, I've rarely seen anything glorifying serial killers because that would be a program or a person or uh, an end result saying, oh, Dahmer was great. He was a great guy. 
you know, he did great things. That's glorifying. Yeah. But, you know, telling the story isn't glorifying. Now, you could say it's exploitative if there's a lot of gore, you know, yeah. and violence to get attention. But, you know, it's not glorifying. I mean, and again, I, you know, I agree with Rick Staten, who was Gacy's art dealer. He said, if anybody's glorifying these criminals, it's the newspapers and mm-hmm. those magazines. You know, look at Manson on the cover of Life magazine. You know, all these, you know, P- Dahmer on People magazine and the newspapers, you know, reporting it, you know, like salaciously. They're the ones that spread that because they're the ones that make people become interested in these serial killers. And it's the media that creates them as and and you know makes people interested in them because they have all those details and you know there are people out there that of course you know they want to know the story stories but then they do want to hear a little bit more of those details and i don't think there's anything wrong with that because you know you could say well yeah this guy Dahmer, you know he killed people and he would eat them and and cut them up well there's more to it you know you're not going to want to probably watch a video of him doing the acts or hear step by step but people do want to know okay well what did he do when he was with the bodies and how did he you know get rid of the bodies and cut them up was it what was it a saw or because you know again we can't fathom these things as human beings because we don't have these thoughts like oh okay yeah how do you cut a body up and how do you dispose of it and you know what if you get caught and how do you you know uh, evade capture we don't think about those things so then when we see more someone who does these things we're very fascinated by it whether it's a saw or a drill or their tools that they use these are all parts of that story as well but again they could turn over into exploitation that's why in my documentaries on serial killers the murders play a very small part Mm -hmm. in my film it's more of the history their upbringing you know what how manipulative they are what they're doing trying to figure out their mindset the history and and you know the sociology of the of you know their cases so um yeah like my panzerat movie i think the murders are like five minutes and the rest is like everything else incarceration his upbringing you know because again their stories are very encompassing so like gacy's story is fascinating yes you know the being the clown you know and he was a clown when he murdered of course but then the murders but then you know after all that i mean i think it's extremely fascinating that he's sitting on death row for 14 years and he has more attention than any celebrity in the world the celebrities were writing him yeah you know and he was doing these paintings he was writing he did his own book he was the one of the first big celebrity serial killers Mm -hmm. so you know and i'm going to explore that in my film as well these people that visited him like the murder band macabre they went and visited him. I interviewed them and they had paintings from him and they even had one commissioned by him. So, again, these are all interesting facets. And that's what makes up that serial killer culture, whether it's, you know, macabre, you know, um, writing songs on serial killers or an author writing a book on Dahmer or the show monster about Dahmer or, you know, uh, an artist that paints images based on serial killers. That's all part of the culture. And many people are involved in that culture, even if they don't know it. If you're doing something on true crime, you know, you're involved in that culture or even, you know, as a law enforcement officer, judge, you know, these people, behavioral, you know, psychologists, they're part of that culture, too. Oh, yeah. Now, in everyone that you've covered, who has been, um, I guess, the most fascinating rabbit hole to dive down? Well, actually, so far it is Gacy because, you know, Gacy is one of the first cases that I've done that has been the most recent of all my serial killers. If we go back... um, 
you know, Pantram, Holmes, and Elber Fish, they were really from like the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. So as contemporary serial killers go, and, you know, Gacy was one of those, you know, um, golden age that we call them of serial killers. Um, his case is very fascinating because there is a lot of research material out there on him. And it, it's very easy to get caught down that rabbit hole. I could be making this film for the rest of my life. You know, there's just so much. And I actually think his case is going to be the Star Wars saga of serial killers. I think it's going to go on forever because there's still, there's still unidentified bodies. There's still a question if he killed more than the ones that were, you know, under his house and in the river. There's still questions as to are there more bodies on his mother's property where she lived. There are a lot of, you know, unanswered questions that, you know, we may find in the future. And, you know, as time goes by, new details emerge from these cases. Like I've uncovered so many things that I'd never heard before, you know, just hanging around with and interviewing a lot of the people involved with the case. I interviewed 21 people that had something to do with Gacy and met him or sat across him or you know, arrested him or prosecuted him. So there, there's a lot of, you know, great, um, you know, base, you know, uh, primary, uh, you know, knowledge of Gacy. But then there are also like a handful of others that have interviewed, uh, you know, experts that didn't meet Gacy, but they're, you know, they're, uh, you know, giving, you know, more knowledge about the case, uh, you know, forensically, psychologically. But yeah, his case is massive. I mean, it's just insane. I mean, they have so many boxes, you know, of research, uh, you know, downtown Chicago, and there are all these books on him. Um, his book that he wrote, uh, you know, articles and magazines, newspaper, and it's just, it's really insane. And, and it's hard for me to decipher his entire life of what is true and what isn't and uh, fact from fiction. And, you know, my own theories about what may have happened in the case or beyond that, beyond the case. Are there more victims? Are there were there accomplices? All these other issues. Um, so it's really massive. And, you know, you figure what, you know, he lived, you know, 40 something years. Um, and I, I put it all under a microscope from the day of his birth to where he was born, uh, you know, all the way until not only Casey's execution, but I have to take it after everything that's tried transpired from his execution till now, you know, changing the address on the house. There's a new house there, um, you know, and the investigation of identifying these bodies that still aren't identified. So it's, it's a massive, massive project. But uh, in the end, it's, it will definitely be worth it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and Gacy was one of those, like, larger-than-life personalities. Like, you know, there's the guy that needs to be the center of attention, and then there's the guy that needs to be the center of attention but draws you in. And that was Gacy. You know, he very much had control of whatever room he was in. And now he's dead, and he still has it. It's He's more popular now. Yeah, he's Gacy's more popular now than when he was initially arrested and when he was in prison. You know, there's so many pop culture items out there by him now. Album covers, T-shirts. Uh, you know, I've got my shelf. I've got two bobbleheads of, you know, one is Pogo and one is Gacy. Um, I mean, there's everything you could think of Gacy. I mean, cop and you know masks of pogo and you know pogo has become this kind of like pop culture figure outside of gacy in a sense you know people know gacy 
but I guarantee you more people will know Pogo the Clown oh, because yeah. of, you know, the persona, right? And the inspiration for Stephen King's It, Pennywise the Clown. Um, so, and of course, the whole clown thing, you know, is, is fascinating because, of course, at that time, there weren't scary clowns, you know, but Gacy started the whole scary clown thing again. And even though he never killed anyone in clown outfit, He's still frightening. And, and that idea that he could portray a clown and here he is going to children's parties and into hospitals with sick children. And, you know, he was probably feeling them up, too. But, you know, nobody thought that he's a nice guy, you know, dressing up as a clown. And that's also the scary thing that we know. You know, also, we've learned about a lot of these people that wear outfits. Right. When I was young, my mother would always say, oh, you could trust the doctor, the priest, the police officer. Well, now, if I had a child, I would not let my child alone with any of these people because you don't know. I mean, just because they wear an outfit doesn't mean they're a good person. Right. You know, but, um, you know, but with, with Gacy, you're right. I, he's just become so much larger than life that now, again, all the, the youngsters, the, the teenagers, the young kids, they're fascinated by it and they're re- researching it, too. So um, he's bigger than ever, really. And it's that. And that's why I want to do this documentary on him. Uh, miniseries documentary because I am a Chicagoan and there were many things I actually had in common with him, not the murders, you know, but uh, <laughs> do we need to check your basement? <laughs> <laughs> right. Don't look in the closets. Don't look under my floorboards. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I'm a Chicagoan. Obviously we both grew up on the North side. His father is buried at Mary Hill cemetery where mine is buried. Um, he went to the same high school that I did and, you know, I was learning all these things and I'm like, okay, it's a contemporary case. It's going to be hard to, you know, because the biggest thing about one of the biggest headaches about this project, cause it is contemporary. So then, um, you have to deal with, of course, it, you know, very high prices for stock footage or photos because, you know, you H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, everything was public domain. You yeah. know, you're talking about 1800s. You know, it's a different time period. But now the contemporary stuff, you know, for instance, I interviewed Walter Jacobson, who um, Gacy, when he interviewed Gacy, Gacy showed him the road trick on his arm with a, a shoelace. And, you know, just to get that footage, it's $3,000 a minute from CBS. Ooh. Ooh. And I mean, I could spend that money on, you know, three interviews or even reenactments. So it's like, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous that the news media charges that for photos and stock photos. It's really ridiculous. But I found some ways around that. You know, I have other contacts and, you know, but, yeah, it's very interesting. And then, you know, to go back, I I, I wanted to address when you mentioned the, um, the victims' families and stuff, because Gacy is a contemporary case. Of course, there are still family members alive. I interviewed... Um, uh, Gregory Godzik, the victim, his sister, Eugenia Godzik. So I wanted to have a victim's family member in my film. And then I have a survivor, uh, Anthony Antonucci, who got out of the handcuffs and put them on Gacy. So oh, nice. with my pro, yeah, with my film, I wanted to make sure I had at least one person from every aspect of Gacy's life, whether it was Helen Morrison, the psychiatrist talking about his childhood, uh, you know, a victim's relative, a survivor, you know, the police that arrested him. And, you know, I did. I I achieved that. Um, But I did not reach out to any other family members. Number one, I do want to be respectful and I don't want to be the one dredging this up for the family members because eventually, you know, they're going to have a choice not to watch my documentary. They, They could hear about it and they could just choose not to watch it. But it's a different story if I'm writing them and hounding them and calling them. And I knew Eugenia Godzik had been in these programs before. 
So I went to her and she agreed. But that's my personal reason, just because I feel they don't want to be bothered and I don't want to bother them. If I have one relative of a victim, I'm happy. And that's what I did. I'm not going to bother them. Now, if some of, if someone may have came forward and say, hey, you know, I heard you're doing this and, you know, that I ask them if they'd be interested. But, you know, again, I don't need to hound all them. We know what they went through. You could read the newspapers yeah. and watch the footage and documentaries of these people crying on Cameron. And of course, how awful it was, you know, and. Uh, so, yeah, that that was my reasoning for not, you know, I don't even have to let them know, obviously, but I didn't even want to contact them in any way whatsoever for their privacy. Oh, yeah. Um, what got you interested in the, the mind of a serial killer, like, in the first place? Because, like, you know, like we've talked, this is kind of a uh, reach for almost, I guess, normals a stretch. But for normal people, this isn't uh, really the route to take. But... I mean, you dove in and you keep diving in. So what got you to dip your toe in the water in the first place? Well, growing up, I wasn't really, I mean, I wasn't really too aware of serial killers. I was more into horror films. And, you know, back then growing up 70s, 80s, they really didn't, you know, for me, I didn't notice it a lot, true crime stuff. You know, I mean, I knew I loved Psycho. I never knew that was based on Ed Gein because as a kid, you know, I just didn't. I, yeah. I didn't find out about it, you know, um, but it, to me, it was more horror films. And uh, so I was always interested in that. Um, and then I wanted to do special makeup effects. So I started doing those um, masks and, you know, old age makeup and gore makeup. Um, and a friend of mine, when he was doing it with me, this was in 91 when Dahmer was arrested. And my friend called me over to his house and where he was living with his parents. And his father was a detective in Chicago, and he had found in his father's office a, a small file with like a three or four page mini confession of Dahmer's, you know, where he first talked to the authorities mm -hmm. or police. But then it had photocopies, really bad photocopies, like they had been photocopied 300 times, you know, that's how bad it was. But, you know, and it wasn't all the bodies and stuff, but there were at least four pictures that showed heads in his sink with their eyes and mouths open and ha their uh, decapitated hands next to them and maybe a penis. And that, like, that really brought me, you know, up to, you know, par with, okay, these are real-life horrors. Yeah. These are, you know, real-life monsters in that sense, if you want to call them that, because they're real people. And those images never got out of my head, and they affected me. So in college, I was uh, a sophomore. I, I'm sorry, I was a... Uh, uh, yeah, sophomore in, in college at that point. So I did a short film based on it called State of Mind, where a detective is interviewing, uh, you know, Dahmer and uh, uh, it's a very short film. But and then, you know, I did that in college. And then for my junior or senior year, we had to do a history of Chicago report. So went to the library and I'm looking through this his historic Chicago book. And there was this one chapter about this castle of H.H. H. Holmes. And they showed they were talking about trap shoots and, you know, secret rooms. And he designed this place. And it's like something out of Edgar Allan Poe's story. So I'm like, OK, this is very interesting. And then I looked further into that and discovered Harold Schechter's book on H.H. Uh, H. Holmes. I think it was called uh, Deranged or Depraved. One of those is Albert Fish. But uh, um, and that really told about H.H. H. Holmes's whole life of in college, how he would start his scams with corpses. And, uh, you know, he was a master con man and he had three wives and he had mistresses and he had these insurance scams and he built the building. And, you know, I was like, wow, for the, you know, 18, late 1800s, this guy did even more than people do today. 
today in his 20s and early 30s. Yeah. You know, it's like no phones, no cell phones, you know, and it was just fascinating how ambitious he was to con and kill people. And in the end, it was all murder for profit. Everyone was a price tag to him. So that began and after I did H.H. Holmes as a documentary. You know, I won awards and, it, you know, it's been almost everybody's seen it. It's been mm-hmm. that was the first film on H.H. Holmes ever. Um, and it's been all over when I travel international or U.S. people. I tell them what I do and they say, oh, yeah, you know, you're from Chicago. There was this documentary about that H.H. Holmes. like. That was probably my news. So I'm like, really? You know, so, um, and then after that, it, it was so successful. I said, well, you know what? This is a good thing. It's brought me success. It keeps me afloat. Let me do another one. And I started researching. I'm like, wow, there's this guy, Albert Fish. Now, why didn't anybody ever make a film on him? So I made a movie on him. And that just continued along that route. And I became, you know, famous and had a lot of fans because of the, the, the style that I do in my true crime documentaries. And people love them. Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah, the H.H. H. Holmes one was uh, when you first popped up on my radar because it was on, I was just scrolling Netflix one night looking for something to watch. And I'm like, oh, this sounds like a fascinating story. And I'm watching it. And I'm like, holy fuck, this guy's insane, but brilliant. You know, I mean, because you're right. He had his hands everywhere. And for that time period, it's just, it, it, it's mind blowing how you know like ahead of his time he was and like he's one of those guys that like if he wasn't a like sociopath he you know he really would have been a genius (laughs) yeah he could have did great things you know because he wanted to you know his inspirations were dale carnegie and you know the rockefellers you know and all these people that were kind of self-made millionaires of the gilded era and you know those were his you know his icons that, you know, he held up in high esteem and he wanted to be like them, but he didn't care how he went about it. Right. How he got his money and fame, you know, and, you know, whether he was aware of it at the time, you know, you know, I think he'd be very happy that we're talking about him and his crime so many years later because, you know, he was very arrogant and he thought he could get away with everything. But yeah. And, you know, with especially, you know, when Hollywood makes these stories, whether it's monster the Dahmer story or um, uh, Devil in the White City, which is the book on H.H. Holmes, and they're make, trying to make that a movie. They've been trying to make that a movie for over 20 years. So every time I hear about it, I'm like, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it because now Keanu Reeves was in it. Now he's out of it. I'm like, see, I told you. <laughs> they should just let me do it because I've got it. I could write it in a month. I mean, I could write a three-movie uh, three series of H.H. Holmes, like Lord of the Rings, epic, three hours each. I can write it and direct it whenever they want. I don't know what they're waiting for. But, um, uh, you know, and then they want to change these elements. Okay, they want it to fit their narrative or the story they're telling. I understand that. But the first screenwriter that was writing, Christopher Kyle, when Tom Cruise owned the rights to Devil in the White City, they were going to do it for Paramount. And Christopher Kyle, when I met him, this was at a uh, symposium in Indiana where they had me, Eric Larson, the author of Devil in the White City, and Christopher Kyle, the screenwriter of that movie. And then I talked to the screenwriter and Christopher Kyle said, well, we have Holmes uh, throwing bodies around the World's Fair. 
and then I tell him, well, you know, he wasn't that stupid. He was highly intelligent. I've obviously, you know, that when they went in his buildings, they didn't find any evidence. They found some things that could have been evidence, but there, he was so good that he covered everything up. So again, why did he change off. things? He still <laughs> right, exactly. These stories are fascinating as they are. I mean, you could change some minor things, but not the details, and don't add things because it just. You know, it takes away that true quality of it. And that's why, you know, if I did one of these feature, you know, Hollywood kind of narrative stories on them, you know, there may be some things changed, but not the truths, you know, and you and catering to, uh, you know, uh, racism and, you know, woke culture. And, and you know, so that's what the Dahmer show was doing, because the two detectives who were in that room in the monster series talking to Jeffrey Dahmer. Well, in reality, they were both white. So why would you change true history to appease race and make up the fact that one of them was black? Because in the show, one was black. And again, I'm not against those things, but it's not the truth, you know? Well, and especially in like the, the case of Holmes, where the, the, the truth is stranger than fiction. I mean, here you have a guy who monetized murder. I mean, he'd kill the people strip their bones, and then sell the skeletons as cadaver statues. Like, you can't make this up. Everything was a price tag to him, you know, and, you know, that's why he had his assistant, you know, Benjamin Peitzel around because he was an alcoholic and he knew, well, you know, one day he's going to come in handy when I need to use him. And he did. You know, he killed him and, and, you know, tried to kill the entire family. But that's how much of a manipulator Holmes was. You know, people ask me, well, you know, why didn't he kill any of his wives? And I said, well, you know, look at the interview with one of his wives when he was apprehended. When they asked her about Holmes in the building, she said, well, he hasn't harmed me or our child. You know, I don't know what he does at that building because he kept the wife in the suburbs away from that. Mm -hmm. And he knew, Holmes knew that if he was caught, he was such a forward thinker, he knew someone has to say something good about me. And is his wife that he keeps up in a nice top baby and will met and pays for everything and takes care of her? Is she going to say something bad about him? Of course not. So that's how he saw everyone as a pawn oh, to yeah. come in handy when he needed them. You know, master genius, but very manipulative, like serial killers. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, where can listeners pick up your books and I'm I think they can even order copies of the movies as well. Yes. Yeah, they're, they're, everything that I have is all my films are on DVD, you know, and hopefully in the future soon to be Blu-ray like Gacy. That'll be on Blu-ray release as well. But um, you could purchase the DVDs from eBay. They're on eBay. And um, my books could be purchased on Amazon. And they're also on eBay. If you just type in my name. All these, uh, you know, pages will come up where you could buy my products. But my store is a great hub. So if you go to store.johnborowski.com, what that has is it has all my products plus more. And then you could actually select to have them personalized and autographed by me. So that's what, like, for a gift, if you want to give a friend a gift, a true crime book, what better gift to give that's personalized to them with their name and a little saying and an autograph. So that's what I offer from my store, you know, and my website. So a lot of people like that as well. And as far as streaming right now, currently all of my works are the best place right now is Tubi. 
because you can watch all my stuff for free on there. My whole catalog is on there, and it's all for free mm-hmm. streaming. But they're also on Amazon. They're on Apple TV. They're Roku and Hoopla and a lot of other sites, too. Hoopla is like a uh, video rental, library video rental site, and, you know, they're on there as well for free. So there are a lot of places for free to watch them, and uh, and that's what's great about streaming now, that there is this access to the product. So. Yeah, they're definitely out there. And, you know, when I do my conventions, I usually have those listed on Facebook and my website as to where I'm going to be. So if you're in that, you know, area, I usually just travel in the Midwest. So if you're in the Midwest areas for these conventions, you could come and meet me and talk and, you know, get an autograph and, you know, we could talk serial killers. And listeners, like always, I'll put those links in the episode description for easy access. Check out all of his stuff on Tubi and be sure to tune in tomorrow for the 13th episode of Moose's 13 Horrifying Days of Christmas. And you can find me and other great podcasters over at Electronic Media Collective. Or, if you just want to follow me, head over to Facebook and Twitter and look up Moose Media Inc. Just look for the moose. John, this has been very insightful. And to give the listeners a little peek behind the curtain as we talked ahead of time, you will be back on and we will do a deeper dive into individual serial killers as the show progresses. I look forward to coming back on. I hope you feel better. But yeah, I mean, maybe even maybe an episode to each one of these killers and stuff, because there is so much yeah. that we could talk an hour easy on, on and more on just one of these guys. Oh, yeah. And, so. you know, like I said, it was great to have you on. And until next time, Horror Hounds, mash on. Thank you. Thank you.